Well, we are in the uh, fifth message in the Relentless series as we look at the life of Daniel and the character of Daniel. And I want to focus in this message on the transformation in Nebuchadnezzar's life. The title of this message is Heaven Rules. You cannot look at history without seeing that there are moments when it seems that chaos is reigning and ruling and suddenly God steps in and does something supernatural. It is a reminder that God has not set this world into existence and forsaken it. But God has set this world into existence and he still rules it. Whether you're talking about the Exodus, whether you're talking about the time of the Babylonian captivity or any other historical event, heaven rules. Uh, I, I love that Nancy Lee DeMoss often uses this phrase in correspondence or in her social media because it summarizes the sovereignty of God and the plan of God that no matter what man plans, heaven rules. We can say, well, we're going to do this or we're going to do that, and certainly Nebuchadnezzar was that kind of king. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but heaven rules, and in this case, heaven overruled. So here we have uh, this man in Daniel chapter 4, a strategic chapter on why we need God to intervene in our culture and why we need to pray for God to intervene in the lives of leaders. God uses Daniel and the way he interprets dreams to influence a pagan king in such a way that it literally changes the course of the nation. This is also a lesson in how God will go to many extremes to draw someone to himself. God cares about the conversion, the change of heart of somebody. And Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, this is a guy who's got an ego as big as Texas. Nobody was bigger, nobody was more famous at the time than King Nebuchadnezzar. He was consumed with himself. He was famous he had great fortune. He had great power. But here we find him in chapter 4. He's had another dream, and he can't sleep. So he doesn't feel secure. And God is going to use Daniel to speak into his life so that the king has an encounter with the ultimate authority, and that is the God who rules in heaven. Now, by the time we get to this message you'll see the transformation in Nebuchadnezzar's life. In fact, as best I can tell, this is the only Gentile king in all of the Old Testament that has a testimony of obedience and of following God. You can boil life down to blessings and adversity, and sometimes in blessings we forget God, but in adversity we always search for God. In this moment of adversity, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to find out what in the world God is saying to him in this dream. This is an official edict, a precise record that was sent throughout the Babylonian Empire. So let's pick up in chapter 4 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, that live in all the earth. In other words, he says, I'm writing this to everybody. May your peace abound. 
It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. What a declaration by this king. Now he's not a believer at this point, but he is acknowledging that there is a king and there is a kingdom and there is an authority, not just a king, the king, the Lord God of heaven. So let's look at his declaration in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 and verses 34 through 37. Once again, the, the Lord steps into this king's life to get his attention. In verse 3, you see that word signs. The word means that which points something out. In this context, the king is pointing out how God has shown himself in power, in signs, and in dreams. Then he uses the word wonders. That means that which surprises or astonishes someone. I mean, here's a narcissistic, self-sufficient king and ruler of Babylon but signs and wonders come into his life and he is amazed and surprised at what he sees and what he learns. God is getting him to a point where he will see some specific things. One, that God's kingdom is eternal. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is not eternal, but God's kingdom is. Secondly, that God's kingdom is not limited by time or space. He's not on a calendar like we are. He's not in a location, limited to a location like we are. His kingdom is not limited by time or space. He's going to learn that God reigns from generation to generation. Kingdoms of this earth come and go, kings rise and fall, nations rise and fall, but God reigns from generation to generation. He's also going to learn that God is consistent in his ways with man. God doesn't act a different way in a different era. God is consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to find out that God's word is consistent. God doesn't change his mind. And he will learn that God's covenants are consistent which is the same thing, but the covenant of God with Israel did not change. Although Israel was in captivity, they were still his people. So here we find a man who has found great pleasure in talking about himself and bragging about his greatness and his achievements and declaring that he is wonderful. But suddenly, God gets his attention now, if you go back to Genesis, Babylon was the birthplace of idolatry. You go all the way back to Genesis, and you see that idolatry was birthed in the area where Babylon existed at that time, dating back to the days of Nimrod. And at one point, Nebuchadnezzar, as we've talked about in a previous message, has ransacked Jerusalem, taken the treasures from the temple, to prove that the God of Israel is not as strong as Bel, the sun god, the main god of Babylon. So 
He, he feels like he has overcome the God of Israel. He has overcome the people of Israel. He's the greatest king of the greatest nation, of the greatest empire of all time. But something changes. Look at verse 17. He's come to understand God's sovereignty. This is the sentence. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it, the rule, he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 25 that you may be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be the beast of the field. Now this is a prophecy about what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize, Nebuchadnezzar, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now remember, this is a decree. He is revealing himself and what God has said in this dream and the interpretation of it. Verse 31, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God is driving home a point. So there's the declaration but now there's a declaration of God's greatness, verses 4 through 33. We won't read them all, but this is a declaration of the greatness of God. So this dream is a dream of impending judgment. Nehemiah is at home. He's content. He's prosperous. He's powerful. But again, he has a dream, and it troubles him. And he calls on Daniel to interpret this dream. Now, most scholars think this dream happened toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life. Chapter 4 and verse 5. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. The message paraphrases it. I had a dream that scared me, a nightmare that shook me. The good news paraphrases it, I had a dream that terrified me. God has gotten the attention of this king that thinks he is above everybody else. His cage has been rattled. His world is shaken. You would think after what has happened and what we've read and studied in the first three chapters that the light bulb would have come on by now, but it hasn't. And so once again, he seeks worldly counselors, they can't answer the questions, and he goes to Daniel and he asks him to interpret the dream. Can I tell you that we all tend to look in the wrong places for answers when we're troubled? We all tend to think we are the captain of our own ship, we're the master of our fate, 
and we look to the wrong place and talk to the wrong people we're in, when we're in trouble. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does again until he gets to Daniel again. I love this quote. It's in your notes by C.S. Lewis. Men want to come to Christ for the relief he offers, but decide not on account of the fact that they cannot have the benefits, but decide not to on the account of the fact that they cannot have the benefits without having the responsibilities. In other words, if you're going to come to Christ, you're responsible for what he tells you to do. God's getting his attention. Nebuchadnezzar is still polytheistic, still many gods. Look at the verse. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. See, still, he's still worshiping his pagan god. And he's renamed Daniel, remember. And in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related to him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you. Now, he acknowledges that Daniel's got something that nobody else has, but he hasn't come to the point of surrender yet. He acknowledges that Daniel knows and accurately interprets dreams, but he still goes to these other guys first before he goes to Daniel. He's close, but he's not there yet. God is giving him a warning. God is giving him a chance to repent. James says in his book, chapter 4 and verse 6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Even though Nebuchadnezzar has seen God work in incredible ways, he's still, he's still prideful. God was seeking out the king, but the king wasn't seeking out the Lord. And so a, a verse that you're very familiar with, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wanted to change Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And Daniel calls him to repent. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 26. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Thus the title of the message. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now, just right there, you could just make note of the fact Daniel is saying if you repent, God may extend his blessings on you. But you've got to act. You have to respond to what God is saying. Verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, one year later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, the guy just doesn't learn. Listen, if you're going to ask godly people for counsel, take it. Listen to it. 
he, he's walking around, he's strutting on his roof, and he's saying, all this is because of me. Daniel has warned him, you need to repent of your sins and do righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. And he's still strutting. This reminds me of Luke 13 and the parable of the fruitless fig tree. When Jesus says in that parable, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. God comes looking for people who respond to his word. And in Luke 13, there's one more year given to this tree, but if it doesn't bear fruit, he's going to cut it down. Five of the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus says, repent or else. You see, God always warns before he judges. He doesn't just drop the hammer. He warns before he judges because he wants to bring us to an end to ourselves. In verses 31 through 33, the king is struck with an illness that makes him irrational and mentally deranged. So here's a monarch that becomes a maniac and starts to act like an animal. This condition is called zoanthropy, when the victim thinks and acts like an animal. I mean, we, we have people that act like wild beasts now in our world. Uh, the world won't call it that. The world will just say, we're just expressing our feelings. We're expressing ourself. What they're expressing is they're acting like an animal. The Greeks had a word, lycanthropy, that was a word that said a wolf man. So here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar becomes insane and delusional. He's refused to give God glory. Now he loses all the glory that he had and that he had attained in his own. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. You see, the history of man is the consequences of not listening to God and the consequences of sinning against God. Daniel shares with the king, but it's not good news. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is not a watered-down, socially acceptable gospel that won't offend the king at all for fear that the king might do something to Daniel. I mean, Daniel just hits the nail on the head and says, you need to repent of the way you have been acting. You're sitting on your high horse, and you're about to crawl on the ground like an animal, and you need to change your ways. You see, that's a danger with evangelical churches today. We don't want to talk about the consequences of sin because we're afraid we'll run people off and people will quit coming. We don't want to talk about hell. We're afraid that people will be scared off. The Bible's not afraid to talk about that. But even in evangelical circles, we are afraid to offend people. Listen, better to offend people and they be saved than to please people and they end up in hell. So the scriptures and the prophets and Jesus never shied away from telling the truth. You, you cannot appreciate good news until you know the bad news. And once you know the bad news, then the good news really becomes good news. Here's the bad. I'm a sinner. I'm full of myself. I'm full of pride. I have an ego. I need to change. Jesus can change my life. 
That's the good news. The whole counsel of God leads us to walk in repentance. Daniel said what needed to be said in the moment. The king's problem and the problem of all sin is birthed in pride. William Temple said, the essence of sin is that I make myself the center of the universe. Daniel tells him, this is what's going to happen to you because you're so full of yourself. And he didn't give the king a cheap, watered-down gospel. He laid all the cards on the table. Alastair Begg said, People who have been called to authoritative proclamation of the Word of God slide into vague, general application. We've got way too much making people feel good and scratching their back and in a cotton candy gospel that does not tell people the truth. And listen, what we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. You worried about where your kids are going to end up? If you think you can get away with sin in some form of moderation and justify it, then just get ready. Your kids are already in the HOV lane headed toward the pig pen because they have not seen you model the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people want to preach and teach and never offend anybody. And when you never offend anybody, you never see anybody saved. Jesus offended the Pharisees. But if you look at the book of Acts, many of them came to Christ after the Holy Spirit came. Why? Because Jesus spoke the truth. Where's the Elijah who will stand before Ahab and call him wicked? Where's the Nathan who will stand before King David and say, you're the man, you're the sinner? Where's the Paul who will stand without apology before King Agrippa? We lack the guts that the gospel demands. You see, we should be sensitive, but we shouldn't be spineless. I mean, we need to be sensitive to what's going on in people's lives, but it shouldn't mean we lose our spine in the proclamation of Scripture. In verses 22 and 25, Daniel tells the king, this decision is urgent. In verse 22, he says, you, you have to change. You're going to have a year and you don't change. But, and the king still talks about I and me and mine. It's all about himself. In verse 27, break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Break away means to renounce, to repent. What was the outward manifestation of repentance? Doing righteousness, showing mercy. This should remind you of Micah 6.8. What does God expect of us? What does God require of us? He doesn't do it and judgment strikes him down. Again, there's a warning. It's not heeded. He's judged. But notice the last thing. There's a declaration of God's grace. Verse 34. But at the end of that period, so Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I'm crawling around like a wild animal. I, I mean, I'm out there living among the beasts of the field. He admits it now in this part of Daniel's book written toward the end of his life. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, what Nebuchadnezzar says is, Lord, you're king, I'm not. Verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and the surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, you say, oh man, he's just right back to acting like he did. You got to read this in context. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Talk about a confession of sin. Talk about repentance. It's right there in verse 37. God, you were right. I was wrong. I didn't listen. I paid the price for it, but now I testify to my entire kingdom and to my empire that you've graciously restored me, that you're in charge and I'm not. What can restore a person's life? First of all, the grace of God. The grace of God. I lifted my eyes toward heaven. Heaven rules. We look to God for grace. Secondly, the acknowledgement that he is Lord, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him. God's purpose and plan was not thwarted. He did exactly what Daniel said He would do, and then God restored Him. Third thing, what can restore is a yielding of self. His dominion, His kingdom, His will. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. We must understand that the God who rules and reigns in heaven and on earth needs to be the Lord of my life and my decision, my possessions, my time, all that I have. God has a plan for our lives. And if we resist him, there will be consequences. God warns and then he judges. The question is, are we using the opportunity that God gives us like the opportunity that God gave to Daniel to speak into a lost world the coming judgment of God? We got a lot of talk about politics right now. We're on the verge of an election, and everybody's talking about why you need to vote for this person and why you need to vote for that person. I see very little talk going on about why we need to say to a lost world that if we don't repent, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. I mean, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge and rule and reign. But judgment is coming. A nation that lives in sin, like this nation lives in sin, cannot expect the blessings of God. Where are the evangelicals that are saying this world is headed to hell? But there is hope in Jesus. You see, you can have a life-changing 
decision, even if the whole world rejects Jesus, you can respond to him. You can respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Lennon of the Beatles did an interview with Rolling Stone magazine one year before he was killed on the streets of New York. This is what he said in that Rolling Stone article. When I wrote Help in 1965, it was hailed as just another advance in rock music. What nobody understood was that it was the cry of my heart which no one came to answer. Help. Well, they're all puffed up. They still need help. They still need Jesus. Well, they're, they're nobody. They still need help. They still need Jesus. Well, they seem to have everything. They still need help. They still need Jesus. And when heaven rules, we cannot forsake our responsibility to speak truth into the culture and to, be, to speak truth into people's lives, whether they are great or small, wealthy or poor, famous or nobodies. We are to speak truth into lives so that they have an opportunity to repent and follow Jesus. If heaven rules in my life, I want people to know Jesus saves. Father, I thank you for the example of Daniel who, even in risking his own life multiple times to speak truth into the king of Babylon, he did it without hesitation or reservation. I thank you for his example. Lord, he depended on you. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And on this side of the cross, 2,000 years removed from the cross with the indwelling Holy Spirit, empower us to speak with the authority of heaven into the culture and into the citizens of this nation that you are warning us that we need to repent or deal with the consequences of our unrepentant hearts. Lord, save the lost and empower the saved to share the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.